Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Slayer podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and today's episode is literally like 50 shades of gray meets Dirty John. It is insane. I am going to outline the life and crimes of con man and serial killer John Robinson. But before I get started, I just want to thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer podcast. I love doing this. I just love talking about true crime. I love having a group of people to tell all my fave ones to. And I just appreciate you listening. If you don't mind, leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcast. And definitely go check out my merch, guys. Like, be a team player. I'm going to drop the link below. And with that, we're just going to get started. So glad you're here. So John Edward Robinson was a con man and a murderer, but you would not know it just by meeting him because by all outward appearances, John seems like a typical family man. John was born in Illinois as one of five children. His father is said to have been a really heavy drinking alcoholic and his mom a very strict disciplinarian. John was born December of 1943 and according to him, his mom was very abusive both physically and emotionally from as early as the age of five. So probably as long as he can remember. I think John attended a sort of Catholic prep school until he decided to drop out and go to a two-year vocational trade school where he wanted to get a radiology degree and become an x-ray tech. The thing about that, though, is he did not finish the program to become an x-ray technician. Instead, he just forged his diploma. He forged it. He forged it and it worked and he landed himself a job. Now, around this same time, John married a woman named Nancy Jo Lynch. They had met in Illinois at the tail end of 1963, maybe very start of 1964. John was 21 and the two had a whirlwind romance. They were married within months of meeting. Now, the job that John lied his way into did not last forever, though, because it didn't take long for John's co-workers to realize One, John either lied about his credentials, or two, he was literally the most unfit x-ray tech in the entire world. Now, he was eventually let go of his first job, but he would secure new jobs over and over and over. I am unclear if him and Nancy moved from Illinois to Kansas City before John changed jobs or after, but either way, the couple gets married and they moved to Kansas City, Kansas in 1964. And then they had a baby boy named John Jr. in 1965, which, oh man, to be named after your father and find out he's a serial killer has got to be awkward. So John went through a couple of jobs because to put it simply, he just kept running very petty white collar cons on people and getting caught. So he would embezzle money from literally every place that hired him. But then John got a job working for a Dr. Graham in 1966, and by all accounts, it looked like he was settling down on the white-collar crime. Dr. Graham was a physician with a lot of work, and he hired John as an x-ray tech for his office. In 1967, John and Nancy have their second child, a daughter named Kimberly. So things are looking pretty good. John kept his job at Dr. Graham's office a couple years, surprisingly. Now, John has been said that around the office he was known for having casual sex with co-workers and patients Um, but I do not think his family knew about this some of his sexual partners he'd actually manipulated into having sex with him by telling them some sob story or lie so for example one story was like he said his wife was so ill that she was sexually unable to perform and he was so deprived and just needed it. And people actually felt bad for him and they would have sex with him because of his lies. He's, he's a very good con artist, but the casual sex thing isn't what eventually got John fired. He was caught stealing from the doctor's office. I guess he'd been stealing for a couple years. And he was actually arrested at work and taken out in handcuffs in 1969. And that is when he was charged for theft of stealing $33,000 from Dr. Graham. You guys, that's a lot of money for an x-ray tech to steal in the 1960s. Like, that's pretty ballsy. John was giving a three-year probation for the embezzlement charges, but that three-year probation would get one hell of an extension because John could not keep his ass away from white-collar crime. 
John would move around and do different jobs a lot. Um, it was really easy for him to find work because he would literally just forge his credentials. And it was hard to keep jobs, though, because he would not quit stealing. In 1970, he actually got an insurance sales job and moved to Chicago. This was really short-lived, though, because in 1971, he was caught embezzling money from the insurance company. And he was still on probation. He was ordered to move back to Kansas, and his probation was extended. He had not even gotten permission to leave the state and go to Chicago for this job when he did it. Now, that same year, 1971, John and Nancy have twins, Christopher and Catherine. Then, a few years later, in 1975, John gets arrested again for a phony medical consultation company, and he was charged with investment fraud and mail fraud, and his probation was extended again. So, how has he not gone to prison at all yet? Like, my goodness. So it's toward the late 70s and John begins to find ways to improve his cons and make himself seem like an upstanding, polished, and distinguished member of society. He became a coach to all his children's sports, a Sunday school teacher, he was a Cub Scout master, but behind this new facade, John was forging letters from influential community leaders in Kansas City as um, sort of like letters of recommendation and excellence and praises and reference to John. The con actually worked. John developed a reputation for himself and he was actually asked to be on a charity board and he used this network of new people to find richer people, of course, that he forged and embezzled from. It's a bit above my pay grade. So in layman terms, you know, these people would invest in John's fake ideas and shell companies with promises of big returns that never came because John's a con artist. He's a liar. John was able to move his family from their humble mobile home park to a spectacular home in an expensive suburb neighborhood. He afforded this lifestyle by all the cons he was running. Now, the family still moved to a modular home, but it was big. It was like nine bedrooms and it was on four acres. And y'all, John walked the talk. He presented himself as a successful entrepreneur, businessman, and philanthropist. Okay. And he was so good at this. Now, during his philanthropical businessman facade, John actually made sure he was awarded Man of the Year. He forged a letter to the Kansas City mayor on behalf of community leaders saying that they wanted to award John with the Man of the Year award for his charity organization efforts. The winner is kept secret and announced at an honorary luncheon. I would assume that the luncheon was already something that they did annually. I don't think like John made up the whole event, right? So yeah, John gets himself nominated man of the year for the charity. It was like a big deal. He came to the front, accepted the award, yada, yada, yada. But eventually all the community leaders whose name John forged found out in the newspaper what John did to win the award. And this was so humiliating for John and his entire family. Like, oh my gosh, even the kids at school talked about it to John's kids. It was a big deal. But Unfortunately, it didn't make people take a closer look at John like it should have. People just kind of wrote it off as a mere embarrassing stunt for attention and recognition. And John continues being a part of this community philanthropy group. But John doesn't learn. He's not going to stop. And in 1979, his probation finally ended. But right after his probation ended, John gets arrested again and he was arrested for embezzlement and check forgery so he's ordered 60 days in jail in 1982 and does John chill out no with his arrest in 60 days in jail he comes out and he's like man I gotta find a new con so he gets a friend to invest $25,000 into a hydroponic startup business that does not even exist it's just a shell company and then John sets up two more shell companies on top of that and continues frauding people so he names the first company hydroponic something and then he names the other two companies Equiplus and Equi2 and he would just find various ways to scam people out of money and unfortunately it's not the worst thing that John ends up doing 
So in 1983, John decides to hire a sales representative for his pretend company. A 19-year-old female named Paula Godfrey answered a job listing that John posted. Paula told all her friends and family about her exciting new job and how she was going to need to travel soon for on-the-job training. However, after departing for training, no one ever heard from her ever again. So of course her family reported her missing and police were able to track down Paula's new boss. When they came to John Robinson, he maintained that he had no idea where Paula was. Then her parents conveniently received a typed letter that was signed by Paula saying that she was running away and starting a new life and just simply did not want to be found. Her remains have never been recovered, but it is believed that she was John's first victim. I think he used his real name with his first victim as well. So John has yet to say what he did with Paula or where he put her, and he likely never will. So I want to touch base before we go further into the murders. According to court testimony, John was an excellent father and husband. His family says that he was very involved, very loving. He went to all the children's events and had a good relationship with them. He was said to have had a really strong bond with his youngest daughter, Christy, and her children. He would often babysit her son and daughter. And so overall, nobody has any idea what John was doing from 1983 until his arrest. So John has pulled off a lot of shit and served very little prison time, but his behavior escalates further. So after Paula's disappearance, John came up with a really weird scheme. You see, his brother and sister-in-law had always wanted a baby, but they had infertility issues. So in 1983, John said that he could connect his brother with a Missouri attorney who specialized in adoptions. This attorney did not exist, but only John knew that. So John's brother gives him a retainer for the pretend attorney. It's somewhere between two and three thousand dollars. And for the next several months, John strung his brother along with several potential adoptions that continually fell through. So for those unfamiliar with the adoption process, it can be an arduous uphill journey. And I think just convincing his brother that he was actually working with an attorney and the adoptions just kept falling through is probably one of John's easiest scams as far as conning people, but definitely a really dark one. So in order for John's plan to fully take shape, John needs to procure a child. And to find this child, John knows that he needs to find a desperate and vulnerable new mom. And the best way he thought to do this was through fake charity. He could establish something for new moms experiencing a crisis or a really hard time, like a fake charitable organization designed to help desperate moms. So that is exactly what John did. He created a fake program for single struggling moms, and he claimed it was financially backed by prominent business people from the East Coast. And he went to several pregnancy resource centers, social workers, and food banks, and, you know, places like that, telling them about this new program being offered to struggling moms that qualified. A social worker testified later that in 1984, John approached her with this new program and asked her if she had any candidates. He said they were looking specifically for young mothers, preferably white and not on good terms with their family. He gave her a tour of the apartment the girl would be placed in, but he didn't give her any actual paperwork or extensive information on the program, and she decided to never refer anybody to him. But this was his new thing. He was going to procure a baby for his brother to adopt and make profit from it. Although that social worker did not take John's bait, somebody else would. In January of 1985, John found a 19-year-old new mother named Lisa Stacy and her four-month-old baby girl, Tiffany. Lisa was in a really vulnerable state. She was estranged from her baby daddy. He basically became a deadbeat and then ran away to rejoin the Navy. And this didn't leave Lisa with much support at all. Um, Lisa seemed a bit uneducated and naive. She was jobless, and she was actually living in a group home with her baby. John lied to Lisa and told her his name was John Osborne, and the new program that he was offering was to help young mothers get on their feet, and he would provide Lisa with childcare, housing, job training, and an allowance. John did warn Lisa that the first few months of training were in Texas, and she wouldn't be able to talk much to her friends and family. 
Then January 9th, 1985, Lisa decides to take John up on this amazing opportunity, and he comes to pick her up and Tiffany at Lisa's in-laws. But the same night that she left, Lisa ends up making a frantic phone call to her mother-in-law. She was panicked, and she's like, they're telling me you're going to take my baby away from me. And her mother-in-law is very confused, and she's saying like, what? No, that's not true. That That's not true, Lisa. But Lisa is super frantic and upset and she's really not making perfect sense but she does say they've made me sign like four blank papers and the mother-in-law instructs Lisa do not sign anything and insists whatever's going on there the mother-in-law is not a part of she's not trying to take her baby or anything like that but then Lisa has to quickly hop off the phone and Lisa just says they're coming I gotta go and she quickly hangs up and that is the last time Lisa was ever heard from. I wish I could tell you what John did to Lisa after that phone call. But to this day, he will not say, nor will he disclose what he did with Lisa's remains. But following the phone call the next morning, Lisa's mother-in-law calls the motel that Lisa had called her from. And they informed her that Lisa and Tiffany had already checked out. The mother-in-law did ask the hotel who paid for the room, and the room was paid for by a local business credit card. The business was owned by Equitu, and the family looked into who was on that business, and it was John Robinson. But Lisa left with the John Osborne, so red flags are for sure going up. Lisa's brother-in-law decides to look up the address for Equitu, and he actually goes to check out the physical location and just find John Robinson. But once he gets to the building, he is basically shoved out of there by a young man in his 20s. Two days later, Lisa's in-laws received another phone call. It was from a priest named Father Martin. And he said that he does charity work at a downtown Kansas City mission and just wanted to let Lisa's loved ones know that he has seen Lisa and Tiffany. The two are doing very, very well, but they have chosen to end the program early and leave town with a man named Bill. So this seems really odd to Lisa's in-laws and they decide, you know what, let's look up the mission that Father Michael claimed to work at and they called the number listed in the phone book, I assume the phone book, and the mission said that there was no Father Martin. So Lisa's in-laws immediately are like, okay, this is too many red flags, we're going to the police and we're going to file a missing person report and just explain everything that's happening. Now, at the same time Lisa's family is filing a police report, John is calling his brother and saying, hey, a young mother killed herself in a domestic abuse shelter and she has a baby that you could adopt. It was rather unconventional, but John's brother and sister-in-law jumped for joy at the opportunity to have a baby and they gave John close to $5,000 for the lawyer to file all the paperwork. Of course, there is no lawyer. The baby was actually Lisa's baby, Tiffany. But John forges the name of a lawyer and a judge onto fake adoption papers and pockets his brother's money. He forged an adoption. This man is crazy. Meanwhile, the police didn't have a lot to go on, but the case did look eerily similar to a missing person case from about four months prior. It reminded them of the girl Paula Godfrey, the one who answered a job listing for a John and then disappeared. So police are really concerned for Lisa and Tiffany. They spoke with Lisa's estranged husband even, and they also spoke with John Robinson. John said, yes, Lisa was in the charity program that I operate for single struggling moms. And during her time, she met a guy named Bill. He became her boyfriend. And the last I spoke with Lisa, she came into my office with Bill and thanked me for everything I'd done to help her and informed me she was going to start a new life with Bill and Tiffany. On a side note, it is so gross to me to not only do something heinous to Lisa and then adopt her baby out to his brother, but to also pretend that Lisa came into his office and thanked him so much for everything she'd done for him. This guy is gross. So police were suspicious because they knew this John was the same John missing 19-year-old Paula had applied to work for before disappearing, but they had very little evidence or a lot to go on to say it was foul play. I mean, it could have been a coincidence. That's the most connection that they could make. The police were contacted again by Lisa's in-laws because the in-laws received a typed and signed letter from Lisa. Lisa also sent a typed and signed letter to the group home her and Tiffany lived at. 
The big issue with this is that the letters were typed and Lisa did not know how to type. And it was very unlikely that she'd learned to type so quickly and made no errors. Remember, Lisa was not very educated. Um, they just thought this was out of her scope of knowledge. So I don't know for a fact, but I heard in a documentary that the cases were believed to be possibly connected, but it was still different law enforcement officers looking into different missing person cases. So a bit of time went by before John struck again that anybody knows of. I personally and a lot of other people think he's got many more bodies under his belt. But it was June of 1987 when a resident of Kansas files a missing person report for his stepsister, Catherine Clampett. She was 27 and relocating to Kansas from Wichita, Texas for a new job and to just sort of get her life together. She answered an ad in a newspaper to be an executive secretary for a CEO named John Dawson. Soon after starting this new job, though, Catherine literally falls off the face of the earth. After a bit of time, Catherine's mom received a typed and signed letter from her daughter. Now, I don't know exactly what the letter says, but apparently it just didn't sound like it was actually typed by Catherine. Um, it just didn't have her tone. So concerned, Catherine's brother calls the company Catherine's boss, John, supposedly worked for. Remember, he's CEO at this company. So when he called the company, he found out that there was no John Dawson even employed there. Worried, the stepbrother went through some of Catherine's belongings, and he actually found hotel receipts that was signed by a man named John Robinson. So like Lisa's in-laws, he looked up John Robinson and sees that he works at Equa 2 and decides to play the Equa 2 location of visit. But when he gets to the actual place, it is closed. It is vacant. Why is it closed? Oh, because literally a couple weeks before Catherine's brother came looking for John at Equa 2, John was arrested. So whew, it's a little bit complicated to explain, but I'm going to try. Basically, the FBI gets involved with John Robinson for financial fraud again, and they do forge the connection and think that John is tied to both missing women after kind of diving a little bit deeper into John specifically. So basically, officers knew if they couldn't connect John to these missing women, then they could for sure connect him to embezzling and defrauding people and probably imprison him for that. Investigators did some extensive digging and found money that John had been laundering through his shell company, Equitu. And here is what sparked the investigation. John was looking to turn the heat up. He'd been venturing into the world of BDSM, and John started having an affair with a 20-year-old named Teresa around the same time FBI started looking into him and tailing him. Now, Teresa was a prostitute that John found and offered that she could be his mistress. John maintained he would put her up in an apartment, give her drugs, money, buy her things, pay for her prostitution services. But in return, he wanted to engage in really rough sex with her, abuse her, and pimp her out to other people. Teresa agreed to it, but then John became like pretty violent and it really began to scare her. So when police were investigating John, they'd been following him. They saw the hotel that Teresa was at, and they just decided to knock on the door and ask her if she'd answer some questions for them. They'd seen John there with her. Teresa agrees, and she lets the police in. At first, she lies, and she works for Equa 2, and she sticks to this story that her and John obviously fabricated. And then police just straight up tell her, like, listen, we think John's responsible for the disappearance of two women. And Teresa began crying, and then she admitted, like, yes, I'm actually a prostitute, and she told the police the ugly truth about her situation. Teresa herself was in fear for her own life. She said that, for one, John made her sign a bunch of blank papers, and that kind of weirded her out, and then he'd sexually battered her repeatedly. One time, he actually sexually assaulted her with the barrel of a gun, threatening to kill her. So Teresa was for sure willing to testify against John. FBI got her out of the hotel he had her in and put her in an undisclosed location. And then FBI and local government agencies agreed that it was enough to revoke John's probation and they could send him to prison. So he goes back to prison from 1987 to 1993 for his multiple counts of fraud. And that's six years that he has to serve. During those six years while John was in prison, his wife and children worked really hard to maintain a good 
close relationship with him. They made many, many trips to visit him. They put a lot of effort into keeping their family together. Because remember, the weird thing about John is like the entire time that he's not in prison, he by all accounts seems like a normal family man. He would go to all his kids' activities, but then he would, you know, pop out, go con someone, make a woman disappear, and then return home as a loving father and businessman he pretended to be all the time. Just truly living a double life. Unfortunately, Catherine's missing person case was not directly connected to Lisa and Paula's for a while. Again, all three cases were distributed to different detectives upon their investigation, right? So they all ended up going cold. Things were not stored in online search-friendly databases like they are now. So although all cases had a connection to John Robinson in some way, shape, or form, all cases were on paper and the connection just got missed for a while on Catherine. No one actually knows what John did to Catherine. He would never say, and her remains were never uncovered. It's very tragic. So while John is in prison, his family suffered the financial loss, and they had to move from their suburban neighborhood into a mobile home park right over the border into Missouri. Nancy began managing the property as income. Did John stop being an asshole, though? No. While he was in prison... He continues looking for people to con, and he cons 49-year-old Beverly Bonner. She was the um, prison librarian, and she becomes totally enamored by John. In fact, when John is released in 1993, Beverly divorced her husband, and she moved near John under the ruse that she would work for him in whatever his new business venture was. However... Beverly made the mistake. She put all of her things in a storage unit following her divorce, and she actually told her ex-husband, hey, I'm going to be traveling abroad, so I want you to send my alimony checks to a P.O. box in Kansas. And then Beverly disappeared off the face of the earth. For years, her checks were forwarded to the Kansas P.O. box, but it was John that cashed them after he killed Beverly. Remember, Beverly put all of her things in a storage container, and the people that oversaw her storage container were very familiar with John, and they said when they asked John who he was and when Beverly would be back, John pretended to be Beverly's brother, and he said that she was in Australia, and she loved it so much he doesn't know if she'll ever come back to the United States. But Beverly was actually in her own storage unit. She was deceased, and she was placed in a barrel with chemicals. John will not give details as to the who, what, when, why of these crimes, but we do know that she died by blunt force trauma and had no marks indicating that there was a struggle. Unfortunately, nobody knew to look for Beverly. Nobody thought that she was missing. They just thought that she left and started a new life. John was excellent at forgery and coming up with excuses and lies, so he likely wrote to any concerned loved ones posing as Beverly until they were content enough to not look for her or worry any further. Remember, Lisa said on the phone before she went missing that John made her sign a bunch of blank papers. Teresa testified that John made her sign a bunch of blank papers. It is likely he did this with all of his victims. That way he could send letters to their loved ones to throw them off his trail and make them think the women just ran away. Now, John has recently discovered how powerful the tool of the internet really is. And he dives really deep into the internet and the world of online BDSM chat rooms. Thinking back on the relationship that he had with Teresa, I think John already had some BDSM fetishes that he'd likely explored. Um, So he's going to combine his fetishes with his search for vulnerable women that he could con and kill with no big fuss. And he wasn't just looking to lure people to kill for no reason. He also wanted to financially gain from them. So he goes online onto some BDSM social networking sites and he is looking for vulnerable women. He doesn't say that, but he's looking for vulnerable women to be his subs, a submissive, and role play sex. John coins himself the slave master online and that he is a dom looking for a sub. That is how he met 45-year-old Sheila Faith from California. Sheila was a single mother to a 15-year-old daughter named Debbie who suffered from spinal bifida and required overwhelming medical expenses that she just really couldn't afford. She was down and out. She was struggling. And John conned her. He said that he was a wealthy, prominent businessman. He could employ Sheila, and he would help pay for Debbie's medical care. 
Sheila took the bait and she moved to Kansas City and forwarded her social security checks to a P.O. box in 1994. And that is when her and her daughter Debbie disappeared off the face of the earth. And just like Beverly, nobody really knew that they were missing and no one filed a missing person report for the mother and daughter. Nobody was looking for them. He did like he'd done so many times before. He would have them pre-sign letters and tell whatever lies he needed to so that everyone would believe Sheila and Debbie were fine and dandy and looking for a fresh start. This was always John's go-to move. Don't make it seem like they're missing. Make it look like they want to leave and be left alone. So all we know is after John killed them using blunt force trauma, he placed them into two chemical-filled barrels and left them in the same storage unit with Beverly's deceased body. Meanwhile, John continued picking up their social security checks for them and cashing them. So now John has lured and murdered Beverly, Sheila, and Debbie, and nobody has the faintest idea that they are even missing or would have any reason to suspect John of being a serial killer, luring women in BDSM chat rooms. So now John dives balls deep into the internet, okay? For work, he decides to duplicate a popular mobile home magazine, and he would gain revenue through business ran ads in this magazine. He was actually served multiple cease and desist orders because his magazine closely resembled another popular mobile home magazine. But John would just ignore the orders and go about his life because he was making decent income off of it. Plus, Nancy was still a property manager, so the couple was doing really good financially. In fact, at some point, they moved from the mobile home to a farm near Lassange, Lassine, Lassine, Kansas, in Lynn County, I think. Now, I can't find an exact date that they moved, but it had to have been close to 1995. What no one in John's family had any idea about is that when Nancy left for work every day, John would scour the internet for women looking to engage in S&M sex with him in person or online. S&M stands for sadomasochism, which is essentially someone who enjoys inflicting pain physically or emotionally onto someone who enjoys receiving the pain. It is a fetish. And he was actually engaging in these sexual alliances with women, him being the dom and the women being the sub. Women actually would fall for his ruse and whatever trickery, and they would come from out of state to see him, and he'd put them up in hotel rooms and then go see them. I personally think John must have been involved in some sort of human trafficking ring. Can't prove that, though. Okay, so in 1999, John starts corresponding with a 21-year-old Polish immigrant that is living in Indiana. Her name is Isabella Lewicka. He offered her a job in a sub-dom contract. Okay, so a sub-dom contract is like a set of rules and guidelines that both the submissive partner and the dominant partner agree on and how they're going to carry out their fetishes and fantasies. They can literally put whatever they want in these contracts. Um, they often say things like what forms of punishment or sexual deviancy they're okay with and not okay with. Some people even put in like little stipulations like, Okay, I'm not going to paddle you unless you quit smoking cigarettes and just things like that. So the sub-dom contract between Isabella and John was actually 115 items long, and it just relinquished all control to John, even control of Isabella's finances. So Isabella readily agrees to move and be with John. He's lured her through this website, and John has convinced her that he's a rich man that is going to take care of her. She drops out of art school and tells her parents that she's going to do an internship for a rich man in Kansas. And when she gets to Kansas, John gives her an engagement ring and the two file for a marriage license. They have a bogus ceremony, but John never goes and picks up the marriage certificate. So it's unclear if Isabella really thought her and John were married, but legally they weren't. Shortly after she arrived in Kansas, she literally vanishes but no one ever filed a police report her family said that they didn't file a police report because they assumed she was traveling the world with her new rich husband because they were receiving letters and emails from her about her travels she told her parents that she'd gotten married but wouldn't give them any information not even john's name this is of course because these letters were likely forged by john after he killed her Isabella was killed by blunt force trauma in the head, likely a ballpoint hammer. 
and that is all anybody really knows. He put her in a barrel and left her on his property next to his shed. That is just heinous. Around the same time he lured Isabella, John lured a nurse named Suzette Troughton. He connected with her in a BDSM chat room as well and convinced her to move from Michigan to Kansas and travel abroad with him. John posed again as a rich businessman, but this time he was needing a nurse for his sick father, which, by the way, his father was dead. And he wanted Suzette to be the nurse because then she could double as his submissive sex slave. He promised her a really good salary and that she'd be able to travel the world with John. Suzette readily and excitedly took the bait and agreed. However, soon after her arrival in Kansas, Suzette's mom, Carol, quit hearing from her, which was really strange. So she reached out to Suzette's employer, John Robinson, and was told that Suzette had decided to run away and start her life over with a man she met named Jim Turner. Her and Jim Turner had plans to sell around the world together. So Suzette, unfortunately, was not actually working for John after all. And that's all John knew. So that was his story. But the thing is, Carol and her mom spoke all the time. So Carol knew there was absolutely no way in hell that her daughter would quit talking to her, especially if she found the man of her dreams and they're going to sell around the world on a yacht. Uh-uh, I don't think so. The mother and daughter had exchanged letters and spoke on the phone too regularly until one day it just abruptly stopped after her daughter moved to Kansas. So Carol goes to the police immediately in March of 2000. And I think that she also went to the Kansas police. As luck would have it, investigators remember the name John Robinson from all the trouble he got to in the 80s and suspicion that they had about him being involved in those missing people cases. Back then, they just had like a strange feeling, remember, but they couldn't really do anything to connect him to anything other than financial fraud. So this time, police were like, we're not letting him go twice. So it's 2000. Police have a lot of questions, but one thing was for sure. John is in connection to four missing person reports, Paula, Lisa, Catherine, and now Suzette. John had either been an employer or a charity organizer for each woman, and the investigators now can, like, see the bigger picture. Remember, though, police had no idea to even be looking for anybody other than these four women. So Carol starts getting letters from her daughter, and they're typed but signed by Suzette. It's definitely Suzette's signature, but the letters do not sound like Suzette at all because they contain absolutely no grammatical errors, which is so unlike Carol's daughter. And then they just don't have the same tone as Suzette. So her mom immediately turns these letters over to the police. And Suzette's friends were also receiving emails from Suzette that she was traveling with a new man on a whim. These were also turned over to police. It was all very suspicious so police just know like they just know John Robinson is our guy and he's the one behind all these disappearances but they decide to play it cool and continue their investigation not wanting to tip John off let's just clarify something really quick so although there had been minor connections to John and the missing women in the past Prior to Suzette's disappearance, many of the officers admitted that they thought of John as just a petty, small-time con artist. And prior to 2000, no one was quite aware how dangerous John actually was. Um, Some FBI and law enforcement literally said in interviews like, hey, I knew he was a piece of work, but I would have never pegged him to be a serial killer or doing anything to this magnitude. This is because although John had the extensive criminal record and lots of shady behavior, his cases were not all worked by the same group of people repeatedly. It wasn't the same investigator coming across him with all these petty crimes and then the missing women. But realizing in 2000, John for sure is linked to these four missing women. Baby Tiffany's got to be somewhere, right? FBI and police decide to work together to gather up all the intel they had on John and finally piece this puzzle together. They could smell something cooking. They just weren't sure what was in the oven. And police said it was actually really hard to figure out what John was doing. They thought maybe he was a human sex trafficker or involved in underground baby selling. Again, 
They have no knowledge of Isabella, Beverly, Sheila, or Debbie. So police decide, let's just start surveillancing John and maybe he'll just show us what he's doing. And they immediately started and they noticed at 5 p.m., John turns into an upper middle class family man. But during the day, he is going into the wrong side of downtown Kansas City and hanging out with some really sketchy people. A lot of prostitutes, a lot of strippers, a lot of seedy hotel rooms. He would engage in the underworld all day long until his wife got off work. And then he'd hightail at home and play house. So police do get search warrants for, you know, John's internet history, emails, um, property, but they weren't quite ready to arrest him and implement these searches. They wanted to keep watching John and they actually found two women who would agree to correspond with John on some BDSM websites and then share the correspondence with police. Now, I don't know much about how they did that. But the information did provide to be helpful because police got to have an inside look at what kind of things John was saying and doing to lure these strangers to be sexually submissive partners for him. That was like their inside look at kind of, okay, so he's getting online and he's finding vulnerable women and he's telling them he's this prominent businessman and he's going to put these women up in a hotel or maybe a motel with the promises of a job and consensual BDSM play. Police were shocked at the amount of vulnerable, down-on-their-luck women John could lure that they then realized some of the women John was being seen meeting in these shady downtown motel rooms were actually women he'd lured from different states through the online BDSM chat rooms. But police are still sort of stuck, okay? Because so far, everything John is doing is indicating to police like, man, he's in some shady activity. He's obviously living a double life. However suspicious he seems, it's not illegal to have consensual rough sex with people. And they need to find out that they can prove he's actually kidnapping women without jeopardizing their case. They're just kind of, huh kind of stuck. They're, they're scared to pull the trigger. But then a stroke of luck occurred. One of the women John lured to Kansas using the name James Turner was really, really down on her luck. Um, articles have her listed under different names, so I'm assuming her name has been changed. I'm just going to call her Tina. Tina had no job and no money, and according to her, she'd met this man James in a hotel to engage in rough S&M sex. But John took it too far and he was hitting her way too hard. So she said, you know what? Something's not right here. This is not how we, you know, follow through on S&M. And she goes to the motel desk and she asks them the name of who rented the room. And the name of who rented the room was not James Turner, but it was in fact a man named John Robinson. And this woman just knew like, okay, something's not clicking. So she actually went to the police and told them everything that happened and filed a complaint against John Robinson for sexual battery. Police said now when that happened, the case just felt so overwhelming and deep and complex because James Turner would be John's 17th alias that he's used to commit various crimes and deceptions. Two days after speaking to Tina, another woman came in. Now, again, her name has changed as well, I think. So we're just going to call her Gina. Gina goes into the police station and she speaks with authorities. Her complaint was pretty similar to Tina's. It was sexual battery and theft by a man named John Robinson. Not only did he rough Gina up excessively, he stole all her sex toys. And guys, we're all adults here. That is expensive. <laughs> But police finally felt confident that with the two reports of sexual battery, the obvious connection to four missing women and all the search warrants they had, they were ready to arrest John, search his property, and then question him. When police knocked on John's door and arrested him for sexual battery in connection to the four missing women, he went pale and he like actually fell, like he fell to the floor. But he very quickly collected himself and then started acting really smug like police were expecting him to. The search warrants police had were for his computer, email, internet history, as well as his three storage lockers and 
three different cities, by the way. So he had three storage units in three cities. And they also, of course, had a warrant for his property. Now, it was a bit complicated because he lived on the border of Missouri-Kansas area. So like two of the storage units are in Kansas and one is in Missouri. The Olathe City storage locker was filled with birth certificates, driver's licenses, and social security cards belonging to many different women. That is suspicious, but it really doesn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt for court. So, of course, police keep looking. They were going to anyway. And the next day, the Missouri Search and Rescue Canine Unit, along with police, searched Robert's property. With them, they had dogs that were able to sniff for decomposing human flesh. And they get to John's shed, and they see that there's two barrels. Now, investigators need to pull the barrels out to an area that is more accessible to the canines trained. So they go to pull them out so that the dogs can sniff them. And before they even have the dogs check, they knew something bad was in there because blood was actually seeping out of like the side of one of the barrels. So when they open it, they immediately can tell that in this barrel is the deceased body of Sue Zett. When investigators opened the second barrel, they were anticipating one of the other four missing women, but they had no idea who this woman was. So, of course, they do an autopsy, and they're able to identify that the second victim found is Isabella. Her family was so shocked and devastated to find out that she'd been lured to her death and was not, in fact, traveling with a wealthy man. An autopsy report showed that both Suzette and Isabella died from blunt force trauma to the head, likely from a ballpoint hammer. Both women had no defensive injuries, indicating that they were likely struck when their guard was down and they were probably asleep or even just looking the other way. Meanwhile, another team searching another one of John's three storage units finds three barrels with human remains. Investigators think they're going to be the remains of Paula, Lisa, and Catherine, but boy, are they shocked when they discover the remains actually belong to Beverly, Sheila, and Debbie. These women were not even on police's radar because none of them were reported missing, which is just so tragic. This was shocking to police. The man that they were investigating in connection to four missing women and a missing infant had now been linked to five homicides, and four of those they hadn't even been aware of, and they still hadn't found the bodies they were looking for, only Suzette. Now, police thinks John's body count is eight, and that he sold baby Tiffany. Unsure what John did with baby Tiffany, Mrs. Robinson actually comes forward with a tip for police. She thinks that the baby John helped his brother adopt was actually baby Tiffany. This is crazy and also a big break in the case because if it is Tiffany, it is a 100% connection of John to Lisa. And then it also shows motive for murder. Police were able to identify Heather Robinson as baby Tiffany using a print of her foot from when she was an infant. Now, this is just heartbreaking to everybody, John's family and police. Can you imagine being kidnapped by someone who killed your mom and then find out it was your uncle? My goodness. So Robinson first had to face his murder charges in Kansas. In 2002, he was tried for the murder of Isabella, Suzette, and Lisa, along with some other lesser charges. He was ultimately found guilty of all counts and received the death penalty for Isabella and Suzette, plus life in prison for Lisa's murder. He then got five to 20 years for interfering with custodial custody of Tiffany and seven months for theft. By the way, John did not ever give a confession or outline his crimes, motive, nothing. Then John Robinson went to Missouri to face charges for the other women he killed. They only had the remains of Sheila, Debbie, and Beverly in Missouri, but in hopes to avoid going to trial, John maybe would disclose what he did with the remains of Paula, Lisa, and Catherine. Prosecutors offered to remove the death penalty if he would just tell them where the three missing bodies were. John refused to do that, and prosecutors basically just gave him the same deal. If he would just admit responsibility for the missing and believed to be deceased women, they would not charge him with the death penalty. So he agrees. He does a plea bargain for five sentences of life without parole. It's so frustrating that they did that plea bargain. Like, all he did was, like, say, oh, yeah, you got enough information to to probably 
take me to the cleaners. So sure, I'll say I did it. It's just annoying. Unfortunately, John won a Kansas Supreme Court appeal for the conviction of Suzette and Lisa, which basically overturned his death penalty sentence to life in prison. But it doesn't matter because they still upheld the ruling and death penalty verdict for the murder of Isabella, which means he still got the death sentence. John Robinson is still on death row in the El Dorado facility in Kansas, where he will probably damn die of natural causes before Kansas executes him. I don't think Kansas does a lot of executing. His wife, Nancy, divorced him in 2005 after 41 years of marriage. I'm really surprised about his wife, Nancy, because early on in John's criminal activity, like his white collar crimes, Nancy actually testified on his behalf. And she testified on his behalf in his murder trials, too. She did it in hopes of sparing John from receiving the death penalty. Nancy said that she and her family were completely devastated about the arrest. She said John was a wonderful husband and father and that the two would always share a special bond. She also said that her and the kids will continue to communicate with John and have him in their lives so long as he's still around. So please spare him the death penalty. (sighs) That's crazy. That's crazy. I'm, I'm just going to say it. I think Nancy has damn Stockholm syndrome, or I think maybe Nancy was his first sub, right? Because I just don't understand her loyalty. Now, John was a doting father and grandfather. He had a bond so close with his granddaughter that while John was in jail awaiting trial, the jail arranged special in-person visitation for um, just this one kid. The mom was John's youngest twin daughter, Christy, and although, and she allowed her daughter to speak with John frequently on the phone and to make as many in-person visitations as were allowed because she had spent so much time and was so attached to her grandpa, John, that they thought it could be really detrimental for him just to be ripped from the little girl's life. So crazy. So crazy. All of John and Nancy's children grew up to be normal and healthy contributors to society. Anyway, guys, this story is so crazy. Go check out my Facebook, Storytime Slayer, or my Instagram, Story underscore Time underscore Slayer, where you know I'm going to post videos to go along with this episode. And if you haven't already, hit up my YouTube and then go buy you a Storytime Slayer shirt for this summer. Okay, guys, I'll talk to you later. Bye.